2: My good friend Glenn Wagner wrote an interesting story about a church that fits very well with what we're going to learn today in just a few moments, and you might want to follow along as I read to you this story about this church. It was a beautiful church. I mean the church building. It was a kind of edifice you would see in an old Norman Rockwell painting. The sanctuary was the kind of room warmed by the deep hues of the woodwork. The pews were the sort with red pads on the seats. They were old, but they maintained their inviting color. The cross on the wall called all to worship. It was plain, without flair, but there was just something about it that reminded those attending of why they were there in the first place. The pulpit was just the right size, big enough to serve its purpose, but not so large to be overpowering to the audience. And of course, the pinnacle of the church's beauty was its breathtaking cavalcade of stained glass windows. Eight glorious scenes from Scripture were portrayed, One in each of the eight windows that bathed the room with light from above. Four on each side of you, as you'd sit in the awesome splendor of it. It was a church building with grace and charm. But, like any building its age, things started to deteriorate. The church had to vote to approve some extra funds, so that the many leaks in the roof could be repaired. Then, the furnace went out, and the board decided to replace it with a new heating and air conditioning unit, And then the organ sounded like it was played at a merry-go-round in a carnival. It seemed the right time to purchase a newer, more upscale model. Yet the greatest concern for the modest congregation came when, for some unexplained reason, the beautiful stained glass windows started to fall out of their positions that they occupied for years. Carefully, one by one, piece by piece, that magnificent art was returned to its original position. It wasn't long before the church then was completely refurbished again. It was even more magnificent and inviting than it had been before. Well, all appeared quite nice for this church, both the building and the people. There was no reason for alarm until one day, not long after the refurbishing project was completed, something happened. Another portion of stained glass window fell from the west wall and tumbled to the ground. It was at this point that a group of experts in building construction were summoned to investigate the case of the falling windows. They didn't hunt too long before they found the culprit. It was not good news, not good at all. What was the problem here? The foundation. Someone had made a decision on where to locate this historic church. The building was resting on a bed of sandstone and its foundation was poorly constructed. So all the refurbishing in the world would not rescue the building from its serious dilemma the building was atop a weak foundation and no amount of patching the roof or replacing the furnace or adding a new organ would solve the root reason for the falling windows even a non-builder knows the basic rule the foundation is essential to the strength of the building well you can hear that in any building that's not on a good foundation eventually it might look all nice on the outside but it won't be long before it'll come crumbling down again And we could say that the same way about our faith, that if it's not built upon the right foundation, then all that we might do will come crumbling down in our Christian walk and in ministries today. And the foundation that I'm talking about is the foundation of sound doctrine. And that's why churches today, and particularly our church here, needs to address that issue of being sound in doctrine, because that's the foundation upon which we're going to build our belief system, as well as our behavior system and how we're going to live. Now some people believe that sound doctrine will divide, so they try to move away from sound doctrine. Many years ago I was in a church in Costa Mesa, California, and as I went into this big church, it was thousands of people there, I picked up a bulletin like many of you get from our people here when you come. And on the inside cover it said, we have no doctrine at this church, all we do is love people just the way they are. I thought it was humorous though, because when I flipped it to the back side of that, they had their statement of faith. So they do have some bit of a, of a doctrinal position. So some people believe that doctrine will divide, and it will, but also doctrine can unite people, and you're going to find that that can help us as well, because when we have good, sound doctrine, it'll bring us together. We'll know what is truth, what is error, what kind of things we need to confront, and how to live our Christian life, and the challenges that we could have. Let me show you how that works. I have a friend, and maybe some of you have a friend very similar to my friend, This friend believes that in order for a person to go to heaven, they have to do a series of good works. And he's put those good works into two categories. One is religious good works. He believes that he needs to be keeping the commandments. He saw those little signs all over the community and he thought, that's what I need to do. I need to keep the commandments and I need to do religious things like being baptized and joining a church. And the other category, he said, but I also need to do just good deeds in the community. Drive safely, give some money to some of the good programs to feed the homeless. And so he says, in order for me to get to heaven, I believe that I have to do these good deeds because that's what God wants me to do to go to heaven. Now here's where sound doctrine divides. We find in Scripture that the Bible does not teach that that's what you do to go to heaven. Look at the verse that's found in your little worship folder there outline. It's the verse Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And here's what the truth says to that man's teaching and belief. It says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So, sound doctrine tells me that my friend, as much as I like him, and he's a good guy that my friend is not a Christian. So in a sense, it divides. Now, is that harsh? Some people will say, see how harsh Scripture is? is dividing us from other people in their belief system. Actually, it's not harsh at all. What it is, is telling me that this is truth, and I need to step up and love my friend, and love him so much that I need to know the truth of the Bible to make sure that he understands that truth so that he will not live in error because the consequence of his belief system, of his type of good works... When he dies, according to the truth, he will spend eternity, not in heaven where he hopes and thinks he's going, but in a Christless place that's horrifically terrible called hell. And I love him too much to let him be there. So yes, Christian scripture will divide, but it's not harsh. It lets us know where truth is to bring us together again. You know, doctrine is something that really would unite us. Some people have been hearing a lot about what is Bush's doctrine, or some of you heard of the Monroe Doctrine. Well, do you know that our military personnel have a doctrine too? And since we we live in a military culture here, some of you might like to know what the military believes about the military doctrine and the importance of it. Now, I'm not here to tell you what their doctrine is, but I'm going to tell you why they have a doctrine and why it's important for them to live up to it. These are some quotes from some people that are involved in military. The first one is General Curtis LeMay of the United States Air Force, and he says this, At the very heart of war lies doctrine. It represents the central beliefs for waging war in order to achieve victory. It's the building material for strategy. It is the the fundamental for sound judgment when we go to battle. The next is General George Decker of the United States Army, and he says this. Doctrine provides a military organization with a common philosophy, a common language, interesting, and a common purpose. And then Captain Wayne Hughes, Jr. of the United States Navy Fleet Tactics, he says this about military doctrine. Doctrine is every action that contributes to unity of purpose. It is what warriors believe in and act on. And then finally in the Fleet Marine Force Manual 1 called Warfighting it says this, Doctrine establishes a particular way of thinking about war and a way of fighting. Doctrine provides the basis for harmonious actions and mutual understanding. Now that's how the military views the importance of doctrine as they understand war and know how to fight war. Now I'd like you to know that we who have biblical doctrine here it's not so much that we know how to wage warfare against other religions or to wage warfare against other believers or even amongst ourselves. Actually the reason we know doctrine is to unite us so that we can lovingly engage others to help them to know the truth in a kind and merciful, gracious way and realize that our real enemy... The enemy upon which we would wage warfare is Satan who is allowing these false truths to be propagated and believed by others to pull them away from God. I like what Paul wrote to Timothy as Paul was writing to this new pastor who is going to shepherd a group of people. And here's what he said about doctrine in 1 Timothy 4.16. It says, Paul writing to Timothy, Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Then he says, Continue in them For in doing this, you're going to both save yourself and those who hear you. I thought that was interesting. He says, take heed to yourself, Timothy. Make sure that you are on the right page with God. And then it says, and to doctrine. For some of you, when you hear doctrine, you think it's a dusty, archaic set of beliefs. But actually, it's very alive. It's not dead orthodoxy. Doctrine is important because once we know what we believe about Scripture, that will trickle down often in how we behave. Do you know that there are people today... That their lives are messed up, although they're trying to live for God. It's because planted within their thinking is wrong teaching, a wrong balance about truth in Scripture. And yet they think they're doing it the right way. They've not built upon a solid foundation. Then it says, take heed to the teaching of the doctrine. Doctrine is nothing more than just correct teaching about Scripture. And he says this, if you do this, you will both save yourself And those that hear you. So doctrine is to bring about a saving, a salvation. Not a dividing and harshness and criticism and condemnation. But it's to rescue people. And that's why we need to know sound doctrine and how important that that really is. So I'm not here in this series I'm teaching is to break down walls so that we would have problems with one another and have an ecumenical spirit. Nor is it to be one that we're going to be divisive with other people. It's so that we would be unified. So what does the body of Christ need to learn? And if you look at your little outline, there's mainly three questions that we need to answer in our series. And one is, what are the essentials of the faith which we can stand upon and which we can unite? So we need to know what they are. We're going to be talking about them later. What are the three common truths that will bring an end to the needless friendly fire that we see in churches today? And then finally, what's the common ground that we can come together on as the body of Christ into unity? The same unity that Christ prayed for. And we're going to look at these things as we move forward. But we need to talk about the essentials of the faith and how it got started. A couple of weeks ago, I told you about two bodies of truth that came about right after the New Testament church started. And I wanted to give you some history. And this is important for you to learn. And maybe it's something here that you can work with with your your kids. All right, when the New Testament started... New Testament church started in the book of Acts, they were really rocking and rolling for God, and you can read that early on. There was a little bit of false teaching, and they dealt with it at the time in the New Testament church, but pretty much the church was exploding in growth. It started in Jerusalem, and it went to the uttermost parts of the known world at that time. About a hundred years after that, there was some false teaching that came into the church. And that false teaching was pretty serious. It came from two sources. One was Gnosticism and the other was Montanism. Now these words I know for the young people, it's kind of like words you really don't know. But I want you to step up and get this because in Christianity this is critical for you. So what they had, the Gnosticism, those kind of people, they really had a belief system that was really convoluted. They said that Christ never came to the earth. And Montanism had another belief. And they said that Christ came to the earth, but he's going to come later on with the Holy Spirit and it's going to be at the end of the earth. And that was completely contrary to what clear scripture teaching was all about. So a group of men, about a hundred Bible scholars, that came together, people that were taught by the apostles. So these were more like disciples of the apostles who wrote most of the New Testament or were influenced by those that wrote the New Testament. So they came together and they began to understand what Scripture was all about, and they decided that they were going to take Scripture. And they were going to now find the passages of Scripture and the truths of Scripture and bring it to a summary. And today we know it as the Apostles' Creed. Now it wouldn't surprise me that people here that might have come from another type of church that often you would quote the Apostles' Creed nearly every Sunday. Some churches even put the Apostles' Creed up on the wall. That's not where I'm going with this. But it's still important because it takes the the most significant doctrines and brings it down to a summary. What I did for you is to provide that in your worship folder. And you can look at that Apostles' Creed. We're not going to go through it today. We're going to talk about doctrines at another time. But right now, I wanted you to know what the Apostles' Creed was. Again, you'll notice as you read through it, that's identifying that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be. Now, about 250 years after that, the church was getting solid in the teaching again. They were coming together. But Satan is so tricky. That he began to allow false teachers to get into the church again and to teach the people false doctrine. There was a man by the name of Arias. This particular man, he believed that Jesus Christ was nearly like God, but still wasn't all God. He was the greatest creative being, second in command, but Jesus Christ himself was not God. Well, it was interesting because a lot of the people, the religious people, particularly some Christians, decided to abandon the faith that Jesus is the Lord, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And now they began to teach that false teaching. So Constantine, who himself was a strong proponent for Christianity in the church, he then assembled another group of people and they met about 45 miles away from Constantinople, that town, in a place called Nicaea. These guys then decided to go back to Scripture, go back to the Apostles' Creed, and come together with a little bit larger document of sound doctrine that they could give to the church to say, we believe all of Scripture, and here's what Scripture means on the fundamental doctrines that we should believe. When they ended their discussion, and these were great scholars, they came up with what is now known as the Nicene Creed. And if you look at it, again, it's a summary, but it's larger than the Apostles' Creed. But in it, as you read through it, it again is taking the person of Christ and reminding those people that Jesus Christ is Lord of Lords and King of Kings and why He came to this earth. Now, as I read through those two different creeds, I can say that that's what we as Christians believe and that's what centuries of Christians believe coming down from the Nicene and the Apostles' Creed coming from Scripture. If there was one truth that's left out of those two creeds that I would like to have put into those creeds that's not found there, it would be this. It would be the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture. Now some of you might say, hmm, that's interesting, it was left out of the Apostles' Creed. Hmm, that emphasis was left out of the Nicene Creed. Maybe there was a reason for that. Here was the simple reason. Back in those days, the first hundred years after uh, Jesus was here and three hundred years when the canon was closed, the church did not have a problem with the veracity of Scripture. The church believed that this was God's mind on paper. They knew what the contents of Scripture would be, the true canon was. So they had no question on its truthfulness, its accuracy, its sufficiency. They believed it. The problem is people were taking things out of context or adding things to it. But they had no trouble with knowing that this was Scripture. Now since the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, you know that we see many people, particularly late in the 1800s, began to challenge Scripture as being all of Scripture. And now you have a whole movement called apologetics that's now reminding us that what we have in Scripture is, are all the books that God wanted us to have, it's all God's mind on paper, we don't need anything else, and there's nothing been left out either. Catch that last phrase. It's all here. Everything we need is right here. That would be probably the only thing that I would add to it. And we're going to be talking about the sufficiency of Scripture a little bit later on. So I hope that helps you to understand why there was those two doctrinal issues that were put out and why it's so important today. There's a man by the name of Jim Peterson in his book that said, The Church Without Walls, the following quote. He said, Their role, the Apostle and the Nicene Creed, in history cannot be underestimated by the people of God. And it really shouldn't be. And I really don't think that it is. So, knowing that this actually helps breed unity and not takes away from it, there's a passage in scripture, Jude chapter 3, that my friend Randy, our friend Randy, read to us today. Jude 3 and Jude 4, two verses in one chapter. For some of you that aren't familiar with that passage, it is a very rich and important passage and we're going to talk about that in a second. Let's go back to the Bible. For you to understand that God is a God of unity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All three in one. All different but all together unity. That's our model. That's our example. And that's the kind of unity that Jesus prayed that we would have the same unity as there would be in the Father. That concept of unity began way back in Genesis. It was then said again in Psalms. It was said again in the New Testament. And then even at the very end, Jude, the last little tiniest book in the New Testament. One more time. God says, I want my church to understand the significance of sound doctrine. So what he does is through the Holy Spirit prompts Jude to write that particular letter, that book called Jude. And in it, he puts two verses together to remind the church the significance of unity. But he does it a little bit differently. While he talks about the beauty of unity in in the Old Testament and while he talks about Jesus' prayer and passion for unity and Jesus' prayer of the Gospels, now what he's doing is he's reminding the church the importance of contending for that very unity that God says is so important surrounding sound doctrine. Now Jude. Jude is not short for Judas, like Judas Iscariot. This Jude is the half-brother of Jesus and he's mentioned in Scripture. But what is so interesting is that when the Holy Spirit wanted us to know about the importance of defending the faith, he then had Jude do it by history. So what he did is he showed what happened when unbelieving, disobedient Israel did not follow the Lord in sound doctrine and what happened to Israel. Then he shows how angels, when they disobeyed God in sound doctrine and how they fell. Then he showed what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah who totally rejected God. It did not follow the teachings of Scripture in a sense. And he showed the seriousness of that so that we would understand the importance of sound doctrine as well as earnestly contend for that sound doctrine. So my question is this. Are we contending for the faith or are we being contentious for the faith? And it wasn't the intention at all for us to be contentious for the faith but to be contending for the faith. Now you had uh, Randy or we had Randy read the passage out of the New King James. I want to read it to you out of the New International Version. And listen very carefully about how the Lord is speaking to us on the importance of sound doctrine. Here's what he says. I love the way he does it. He says, dear friends, dearly beloved, dear friends. He says, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation that we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago, have secretly slipped in among you. They're godless men who change the grace of our Lord into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. So here's what Jude is doing. Based upon God and who the person is of God and the passion for unity and sound doctrine, he is pleading with the people who's reading his letter here as he's pleading with us today that we would earnestly contend for the faith. So now we have to open up that verse and look at it for a moment. So what is the faith that we're supposed to earnestly contend for? What is that faith? It's actually the body of revealed truth that God had for us that now would be the canon of Scripture. It's the body of truth. It's not a subjective, like, I believe, or a confidence factor, or a trust thing. The faith happens to be a body of truth. A commentator by the name of Simon Kissmaker, he explains it this way. Listen carefully. What is this faith Jude mentions? In view of the context, we understand the word faith to mean the body of Christian beliefs. It is the gospel the apostles proclaimed and therefore is equivalent to the apostles teaching in Acts chapter 2 verse 42. Thus it is not the trusted confidence that the individual believer has in God. For this is a subjective faith. In this passage of Jude, Jude speaks of Christian doctrine. That is objective faith. Now if you remember, in one passage it says, earnestly contend for that was once delivered, once and for all delivered to the saints. And the other it says that was once and for all entrusted to the saints. That body of truth. So it's talking about the faith that was given to them. Now when it says that it was entrusted to us by God once and for all, it means this. It means that we did not discover this truth by grabbing a little bit of truth from all different kind of world belief systems. It isn't so much that we come up with this belief, we take a little bit from the Bible, a little bit about how we suppose God to be. When it says that it was entrusted to us by God, it was like God is the author of this truth. He says, the only truth that is the truth for the faith, the Christian faith, is the truth that I have delivered to you. So God says it's my truth in a body of truth given to you. Now you may discover it through the study of Scripture, but it's not something that you're going to come up on your own. It's something that God created and wants for us. It's entrusted. Then it says it was entrusted or delivered unto the saints once and for all. That can be applied two ways. First of all, it was delivered once and for all, being one time. There's not going to be an additional truth given later on. It's given once and for all time. This is the body of truth. This is what you need to know. Believe and live. And it also means once for all means once for all kinds of people. I get that in context because it says the common salvation that we all share. So it's talking about all believers. So it's the one truth for all time for all believers. Which means that it's not a set of beliefs for those who lived in the New Testament days. It's not a set of beliefs for those who lived maybe in the medieval period of time or the revival time in America. Or maybe even for those those of us that lived 10 or 20 years ago. Or maybe future truth. It is truth that was once and for all, signed, sealed, and delivered by God, recorded in Scripture by the Holy Spirit for us today to believe right now. Now, let's go a little bit further in this passage. It talks about what is this common salvation. That's interesting. What is this common salvation? I believe it's talking about the gospel, the non-negotiable grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. That's a common salvation. Now, how do I interpret that? Well, since it's a common salvation, in the Old Testament, people got to heaven... By trusting in the coming Messiah who in the future would pay for sin by the shed blood. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And the Jews especially knew that through all their typology with the lambs and all the slaughter that they did. Then you, with the the animals, the blood. You get into the New Testament days, the message of salvation was by grace through faith alone. The way to get to heaven was the same in the New Testament days. The same salvation plan that was given in the Old Testament and the New Testament days is the same message of salvation that we read today. I'm having a a very inspiring time. In my little time off, I'm reading, again, a two-volume biography on Hudson Taylor, who is a missionary to inland China. And it was interesting because in this particular biography, I also get a chance to read his writings in this biography that was written by his daughter-in-law about her father-in-law, Hudson Taylor.